Hello and welcome to the Armenian News Network Rung Week in Review. This show was recorded on Sunday, February 27, 2022. I'm Asbet Bedrosian, and together with Hovik Manucharyan, this week we have the following topics on deck. Developments in the Ukraine crisis. This week, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Initially, it sought to consolidate control over the Donbass region after recognizing its republics. However, the focus of the military operation quickly moved from the Donbass to the whole of Ukraine. We'll talk about the latest. Donetsk, Luhansk, and then maybe Artsakh? Does anyone think that Russia's recognition of these republics can present a precedent or opportunity for Artsakh? We'll explore that issue. Aliyev in Moscow. Aliyev signed an extensive agreement of cooperation with Putin on Tuesday. What does it mean for Armenia? And Euronest was in Yerevan. The Parliamentary Assembly for Cooperation with the Eastern Partnership countries held its rotating annual meeting this year in Yerevan. We'll get a briefing on that. Now to talk about these issues, we have with us Dr. Pietro Shakarian, who is a lecturer in history at the American University of Armenia in Yerevan. His research focuses on the history of Russia, Armenia, and the Caucasus. And we have with us Yeri Atashtian, who is a regional analyst and researcher based in Beirut with expertise in China, Iran, and the Persian Gulf. Tashian is Associate Fellow at the Issam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut, and he hosts a monthly radio program called Turkey Today. Hello and welcome, gentlemen. Hey, hello. Hello, Azbed. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back. Okay, well, on this show, we're supposed to be all about Armenia, yet Ukraine has stolen the center of our attention for many weeks now. This was a particularly packed week full of new developments. Most notably, Putin gave a long and angry speech on Monday and then recognized Donetsk and Luhansk as independent republics. He then launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I don't even know what questions to ask first because every day has brought so much news. So what happens from here, Pietro? Can you give us a little summary of what's going on since we last talked on Tuesday? Yes. Since we talked last, a lot has happened and a lot has moved very fast. A lot of developments have occurred in a really fast pace. I, I just want to start off by saying that tonight we're in a very dark place. I have been mourning on this podcast for weeks about the uh, potential dangers of war in Ukraine, uh, about the uh, dangerous posturing of the United States and the UK specifically on this mm-hmm. issue vis-a-vis Russia, the dangers of NATO expansion. And now the worst has come, that we actually have a full-scale war Mm-hmm. in Ukraine, uh, not only in the east of Ukraine, but in the whole country of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people of Ukraine are the greatest victims of this tragedy that we see unfolding before us. So where are we today on this? Russia, as we have seen, has launched a full-scale invasion. So it moved originally, it seemed as if Russia was going to just concentrate its operations on the two oblasti in the east of Donetsk and Luhansk, or Lugansk in Russia. The Donbass region, basically. The Donbass region, and it looked like they were just going to consolidate their position in Mm -hmm. this region, and then more or less leave it at that. Because there are parts of Donetsk and Lugansk Oblasti that are controlled by Kiev, Mm -hmm. and Moscow wanted to regain control over all of these areas. The operation quickly moved beyond Donbass and actually moved into, I guess you could call it, Ukraine proper. 
who began to expand into parts of central and, and southern and eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Now, where we are tonight, basically Kherson Oblast in the south, which is just north of the Crimea. This is almost completely controlled by the Russian Federation. Sumy Oblast in the northeast of the country is almost completely controlled by the Russian Federation. The city of Militopol has been uh, taken by uh, Russian forces. And actually, Mm -hmm. the population there greeted the Russian forces as liberators. This is an interesting uh, note. And now, as we speak tonight, they are closing in on Kiev which is the capital of Ukraine, mm-hmm. but also the cities of Haikov, Nikolaev, Kherson, uh, Berdyansk, and Mariupol, mm-hmm. um, and uh, as well as the cities of Sumy and Chernigov, or Chernihiv in, in Ukraine. So they are now consolidating their position in Ukraine. They are moving, actually, at a very kind of cautious pace in this military operation, in part because they want to avoid as many civilian casualties as they can. In the first day of this operation, they wiped out Ukraine's entire military infrastructure. So Ukraine really has no means to launch. Respond they want to a war. Uh, yeah, respond. So so that's uh, where it is now. Has this been a cakewalk for the Russians or have there been casualties in the armed forces? No, there have been some casualties, but resistance from the Ukrainian population has been extremely limited. You hear mm-hmm. in the press in the Western media, a lot about Ukrainian resistance. But Ukrainian resistance in reality is extremely limited. Yeria, you had some concerns about the casualties just before we started talking. What are your thoughts about this? Yes, I mean, I will not be repeating what Pietro said. He analyzed in detail regarding the Mm -hmm. cities that are now under the Russian control. I was not also expecting such a big operation. I was not even expecting that the Russians would at least be close to the capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding, I mean, I'm trying to see also both sides, what also the Ukrainian, let's say, the Telegram sources and the um, social media posts, for example, are highlighting, for example, they also posted some videos, the use of the drones, especially the Bayraktar drones. So, for example, we saw in areas close to Kiev, where you see columns of, for example, Russian tanks destroyed and so on. But this, you know, this is very normal because in the end, it's a war. It's a military operation, but it's a war. And at least in the capital, there is resistance, you know. Uh, in other parts of the region, especially in the eastern part of the region, there was no, it was limited uh, resistance because the population was not, let's say, very pro-Western, unlike in, in the capital or in the Western of area of the country. Um, but also, let's be clear that I don't think <clears throat> the aim or the objective of the Russians is to occupy the country because you cannot sustain to hold the country in very long because you mm-hmm. will... Uh, find a lot of popular resistance and also there would be a war of attrition. This is not in the interest of the Russians. Uh, We don't know the casualties yet. The Ukrainian media is saying that there are more than 4,000 Russian soldiers are killed. I think uh, this is not uh, true because this reminds me a bit Arzunhovanisians, you know, like speeches (laughs) during the Assaf war that the enemy is losing and so on. This is not true, but also if the Russian casualties are more than 1,000, this is an issue, I think, for Russia. That is why the Russians are very cautious. Do they have their own Hachteluyank hashtag? Uh, actually, actually, they do. Europeans, uh, there was something like in uh, Ukrainian, I, I forgot, Slava, Ukraine, something like this. I, I, don't, I don't understand their language. So there were some hashtags, but it's interesting that the, actually the Europeans were putting this hashtag mm-hmm. more than Ukrainians. It says hashtags. glory, yeah, it's translated as glory to Ukraine. Ah. Well, actually, this phrase, glory to Ukraine, actually goes back to World War II. It was used by the Banderas yeah. who collaborated with the Nazis. This is another interesting 
interesting. At least glory to Ukraine does not lie about the state of the world. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's an excellent uh, Ukrainian analyst. I would invite our listeners to check him out, Ivan Kachinovsky. And he is based in Ottawa in Canada, and he analyzes very objectively and scientifically the developments in Ukraine. And he Mm -hmm. actually has said that there is a lot of, for lack of a better term, basically propaganda or how you can say kind of misinformation coming out from Kiev and coming out from Zelensky. In reality, it has no connection with the reality on the ground. The Russians are moving forward. There were two delays in the Russian advance because yesterday and the day before, They paused operations thinking that Zelensky was going to speak with them because Zelensky said, I'm open to talks. And then the Russians said, "Okay." And then suddenly he disappeared. And then he reappeared again magically and said, I'm open to talks again. And then the Russians said, "Okay, let's talk. And then he disappeared again. And then the Russians suggested, in addition, along with Belarus, uh, to hold the talks in Minsk. And then uh, Zelensky said, no, I want to hold them in Warsaw. And then Zelensky proposed, in addition to Warsaw, he proposed uh, Tel Aviv. And then he also proposed Istanbul and Baku. This is kind of interesting that those were the choices of cities. Mm -hmm. He went with Istanbul and Baku. And then, uh, and now it's been decided to meet kind of on the Belarusian-Ukrainian border and and kind of, uh, you know, talk things out. Um, I don't know how successful these talks are, but Russia's new position is basically to kind of continue the advance uh, regardless of the talks. So the talks can go on, but the advance would continue. Because And I think Zelensky had said basically it's too early to call them peace talks, but they just want to start yeah. negotiations of some sort. Yeah. And so this is where we, this is more or less where we are, uh, you know, tonight. Uh, it, like I said, it's a very... Uh, it's a very concerning situation. There's great potential for refugee crisis. The war is never good. Also, one thing I wanted to say, too, we talked earlier about this issue of a war of attrition that could cause high Russian casualties. There are a lot of commentators in the West who don't like Russia. That's very obvious. And uh, they are almost hoping or predicting that this is going to be a new Afghanistan uh, for Russia, that there are going to be a lot of casualties, mass resistance of Ukrainians, this kind of a thing. I would say that that most parts of the country, in particular the south and the east, and also the central oblasty, this is not going to be the case. Population would not do such a massive resistance. But in the far west, in places like Lviv, Ivano-Frankivsk, in these kind of cities in in mm-hmm. the in the region known as Galicia, you know, in in the west of Ukraine where there was this kind of nationalist insurgency or far-right insurgency after the Second World War, there could potentially be something there. Moreover, even though Russia destroyed the military infrastructure in Ukraine, Poland has been, uh, you know, attempting to ship weapons to Western Ukraine. Poland has Mm -hmm. been very active in in trying to kind of, you know, stoke the flames, uh, you know, of this a little bit more. Also, let's not forget that, um, let's not forget that even the Ukrainian president, he just announced that, you know, like even international battalions and anyone can now uh, volunteer uh, to go to Ukraine. Even the British prime minister, he said that we don't have a problem if the Brits, you know, want to volunteer. My concern is that even even Turkey may use also jihadis and mercenaries, and this will become like, Ukraine will become like a second scene, a failed, failing state. It's not failed state, let's say, and the hub of terrorists. It's not just Islamic terrorists, but like neo-Nazi groups and so on. Okay, so, Pietro, you brought up the issue of right-wing nationalists and the area you talked about, the neo-Nazi component in the country. Now, Putin has said that his goal is to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Now, Ukraine's president, Zelensky, is Jewish. 
and of course he is under pressure from the country's far right and Putin has called his entire team a band of drug addicts and neo-Nazis. It sounds a little bit Orwellian talk, but can somebody help me make sense of Putin's narrative about Nazis and neo-Nazis yeah. in Ukraine? Um, this narrative comes from the Second World War. It comes from these uh, you know, far-right collaborators in the west of Ukraine from the Second World War, led by Stepan Bandera, also Roman Shukevich, these, these people who basically participated in the Holocaust against the Jews and the ethnic cleansing of Poles uh, you know, during the war. And then uh, their organization of Ukrainian nationalists led kind of a resistance, of a kind of a for many years, even after World War II, against the Soviet government in that western region of Ukraine. So this is what they're concerned about. But because what happened is after the independence of Ukraine, many of the, there were suddenly organizations and political parties that began to rehabilitate the memory of these individuals. Many of them were active on the uh, Ukrainian Maidan. And what happened is as a result of the Maidan, even though they were electorally insignificant, they gained disproportionate influence on the streets, okay. sort of like uh, the Georgian nationalist militias during the Georgian Civil War in the 1990s. They kind of gained some leverage on the streets. Groups like, you know, the Azov Battalion or Pravi Sector, Right Sector, these kind of groups suddenly began to kind of come out of the woodwork. And uh, they have been an issue for Ukraine and the rule of law in Ukraine ever since for the past eight years. It's, mm. it's really been a problem. And the Russians especially, who valorized the memory of the Soviet victory in the Second World War, this is a complete clash of ideas. For, and even within Ukraine, this is a clash of ideas, because mm -hmm. if you're from the eastern or southern or central oblasty, you would have a very, very positive view of the Soviet victory in World War II versus somebody in, you know, uh, Lviv, let's say. So um, this, is, uh, this also plays the Ukrainian memory politics. Now, Putin has leveraged because a lot of civilians, I should mention, in the 2014 war in Ukraine, in Donbass, the first war in Donbass, that uh, a lot of civilians were indiscriminately targeted. There was a lot of shelling and, and killing and, and dehumanization of Ukrainians in, in Donbass. Putin has leveraged this to say now that this is like genocide, playing the card of Kosovo from the American intervention in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Yeah. So he is, again, playing that card. And he's basically kind of doing what the Americans did. I mean, and I was asking about this because I just felt like the, the language of using genocide and Nazis and neo-Nazis just seems a little extreme for me. So I just wasn't sure exactly where it's coming yeah. from. Now, a lot of people say that the neo-Nazi groups are insignificant. But you, you say that they're electorally insignificant, but they have essentially like a very, very vocal uh, as a yeah. minority. It's like it's like the Mikadrioni in, in Georgia in the 1990s, a far-right nationalist militia. It's the same kind of a thing. It's a paramilitary group, Pravi Sector, or Azov Battalion. And actually, Poroshenko, during the war in 2014, began relying on these battalions more because uh, he couldn't trust even his own army during that war. Because, I mean, again, this is like Slavs versus Slavs, you know, Ukrainians versus Russians. As we know, they're very interconnected. This actually allows me to segue really quick into the fact that there is a significant uh, anti-war movement in Russia. A significant mm -hmm. part of the Russian population yeah. is opposed to the operation in And there in are Ukraine. some demonstrations in Moscow now. And, and uh, this is why, yeah, uh, this is why I was saying that if from here to one week, let's say, we would not end this military operation and we would not come with a diplomatic outcome regarding the solution of uh, Ukraine, there would be more casualties, so hence 
if there is no domestic legitimacy in Russia regarding the war, I have already concerns that something may happen in Russia. I won't expect the color revolution or anything like this, but you know the West will also try to destabilize Russia from uh, within. This is maybe a card that uh, the Western countries or NATO can play. Uh, let's see. So that's why the sooner this war ends, it's it's better for both sides, not just for Russia, but also for NATO, because I don't think also like the Baltic states, for example, are ready for huge war. Like I'm talking about Lithuania, Latvia, you know, all these states that the population doesn't exit the three million. Even uh, Poland, I mean, you know, as Pedro said, that Poland is one of the countries or that's pushing for a crusade against Russia. But even Poland is not ready for war. Germans and the French yeah. would not take uh, any sides. But I was also surprised by the uh, Nordic countries, like the Swedish and the Finland. Yeah. And now there are talks that even Finland and Sweden, they join uh, NATO. This is very interesting. And this would have a backlash, actually, on Putin's idea that he was trying to push NATO outside his borders, or let's say outside the Soviet Union borders. Right. But now, you know, NATO is getting closer and closer. So I'm not sure how his calculations were right and so, but we will let this, the future will answer to this issue. Well, I just want to say about Scandinavia, Sweden and Finland, in particular Finland, I mean, there has been pressure for years now, recently coming out of Washington for these countries to take more of an aggressive stance toward Russia. I mean, these are countries that have been celebrated. I mean, that we've, we know them to be neutral, liberal, paradigms of progressive politics that really they are kind of uh, the example of kind of, I guess you could say, democratic socialist welfare system in Europe. And now the irony, of course, is that you have some of the most hawkish voices coming from Stockholm and Helsinki. And, and that actually is really baffling to me and really concerning. I would say it's especially concerning for Finland because now you hear things coming from Moscow like, well, if Finland tries to do something, we would react. Well, that's mm -hmm. very concerning given what we're seeing in Ukraine. Yeah. And one more thing I wanted to say, NATO has an article within you know, the organization, Article 5 of NATO, that an attack on one is an attack on all. What that means is if that article is invoked, we're suddenly in a nuclear war or a thermonuclear war, God forbid. So it, it, is, it is extremely concerning because you have some pundits in the United States recently who've been saying, even though Ukraine is not a member of NATO, maybe we should potentially implement Article 5 if Russia maybe does a cyber attack and then it results in power outage in eastern Poland or in the Baltic states. And then we can use that almost like as an excuse to go to war with Russia. <laughs> and, and you think, oh, my God, I mean, this is like a Dr. Strangelove kind of scenario that, that, that this is ironically, you have, you know, even some Democrats uh, talking about this. And it used to be Democrats not too long ago were known as being very anti-war. Yeria, China has been mostly very quiet about the whole thing, but yesterday laid out some of its fundamentals for resolving the crisis. Basically, international laws and rules to be applied, territorial integrity, such things, for example, and, and said basically Ukraine should be a bridge between East and West and not a confrontation zone. What do you think China is thinking? What is China's interest in this whole Ukraine crisis? Yeah, thank you. Actually, China took its time to respond or to highlight its clear position regarding the conflict because Chinese also have, uh, let's say, business and bilateral relations with Ukrainians. And they also need uh, grain and wheat, which comes from Ukraine. So they have good relations with the Ukraine. And that is why, for example, during the 2014 clashes, the crisis and the annexation of Crimea, they were like a bit more or less neutral. 
so the same, but actually it was interesting that Chinese criticized the NATO and American imperialism that saying that this was a NATO crisis because the Chinese were aware that if, for example, Russia was encircled or let's say defeated or something like this, you know, the next target was China because for China, Russia is a buffer to actually uh, prevent NATO or let's say Western expansion towards uh, whether Central Asia or mm-hmm. even Eurasia. Yeah. Uh, I don't consider Chinese and the Russians allies. Uh, a lot of people actually, especially Re- Eurasianists, let's say they fall in this trap portraying that there is an axis of alliance between Iran, China and Russia. No, these three states actually, when it comes to geopolitics and so on, they uh, cooperate. They try to prevent, for example, Western expansion. I mean, we, we saw what happened in Kazakhstan. You know, the Chinese were almost in the same group with the Russians because they were afraid of Western expansion there. So, yeah, the Chinese were very cautious. And also, let's not forget that the American media also, they came up with this news that the Chinese were going to invade Taiwan and so on. So I remember, like, I think it was yesterday, and then the Chinese refused about this. So, yeah, the Chinese are cautious. But at the same time, they cannot also isolate uh, Russia, but at the same time, they cannot antagonize the Americans a lot. So the the more the conflict is prolonged, uh, it's not good for the Chinese. Yeah, certainly we've gone from what used to be considered unipolar with the U.S. as being the sole superpower to almost tripolar at this point, China, Russia and the United States. So question here about Putin meeting Aliyev this week. We'll talk a little bit more about the, the content of the meeting and also Pashinyan twice. So why is he putting so much emphasis on talking to the, the South Caucasus leaders? Um, Pietro, do you have a thought about this? I think uh, because the Russians had a plan in advance. They had, I mean, they had planned this Ukrainian operation in advance, and they wanted to make sure that there would be no distractions in the meantime. So they wanted to make sure there would be no renewed hostilities in Karabakh or Sunik or anything like this. No, no new fires that they would have to go and put out. So yeah. the other aspect of this is, is, quite frankly, Turkey flexing its muscle in the region. We saw with Kazakhstan, this is uh, one case. But the idea would be to also limit Turkey's influence in the region. So mm-hmm. that was the idea of inviting Aliyev up to Moscow, Yeah, uh, you know, to talk to him. But, but remember, also, Aliyev also went to Ukraine. I mean, he did go to Ukraine, but yeah. the idea is, I mean, for now... For so is there any kind of shuttle about, diplomacy that's happening through Aliyev between Russia and um, Ukraine? No, I don't think it's the case. I think uh, that Ukraine okay. and Azerbaijan have strategic relations that Azerbaijan is trying to take advantage of. And I think that, uh, I think that, but this meeting specifically was in advance of this Ukrainian operation to keep things under control down there. I think that that was the main idea. Since you mentioned that Putin didn't want any surprises. Uh, we also heard that in the... Well, there were surprises, yeah. There are certain villages in Artsakh where the Azeris went and started broadcasting in fluent Armenian that this is yeah. our land, you should get out of here. They started broadcasting prayers in Azeri. Uh, so it's, you know, it seems like you know he, he still feels a little bit bold to do that. Well, they, they have a problem down there. I mean, the Russians have a very, very serious issue because after the Artsakh war, suddenly the balance of power in the region was off kilter. That Azerbaijan was flying high and you had an Armenia that was defeated. You didn't have any equilibrium between these two countries anymore. 
And that's that's a long-term issue that they're going to have to find some way to deal with because Azerbaijan, if there is no solution to that problem of reestablishing an equilibrium, Azerbaijan is always going to be acting like this, that they can do whatever they want in the region. Even it's extremely bold of them to do that, even after Aliyev met with Putin, even after it's very clear what's going on in Ukraine. And then on top of that, Zelensky, when he's suggesting a possible meeting for peace talks over Ukraine, he's suggesting Istanbul and Baku. So he's very much in good contact with Ankara and Baku on developments. So this is actually a very interesting crisis uh, in Ukraine because for Russia, they begin to see who are their friends, who are their real friends on the geopolitical stage. And I think that in addition to his meeting with Aliyev, Putin also met with Pashinyan in part to kind of do some, you know, damage control, to kind of make sure that Armenia didn't get the impression that he was just focusing on Baku alone. Well, you know, um, this is, just this is a, something uh, that, yeah. to clarify, the Putin-Pashinyan meetings were over the telephone or were teleconference. Certainly the ones this week, yeah. Yeah. Let's focus for a moment on the newly recognized republics. Within 24 hours of Putin's announcement of recognition of the new People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, South Ossetia, Abkhazia and Artsakh expressed support and congratulations to the new republics. Yeria, my question here is, are there valid parallels between Donetsk and Luhansk and Artsakh's quests for independence? Uh, I don't see this, and especially when it comes from the Armenian viewpoint. I mean, let's not forget that we haven't uh, recognized the independence of Artsakh, unfortunately, and it would be a bit hypocritical to recognize the independence of newly, let's say, formed uh, states and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think also there is like concrete Russian pressure to do that, because even like other CSTO member states like Kazakhstan and even Belarus are ready to recognize uh, this step. However, from also like when it comes to international and self-determination, for me, it's still early to say, you know, the destiny or the future of these two newly formed independent republics, whether they will remain independent or they will be annexed to Russia, or maybe they will be part of a future kind of Ukraine. We don't know what will happen in the country, like whether a federal state of Ukraine will be formed, because I think a federal state will be also beneficial for Russia if this federal state in the future is a neutral state. Uh, So that's why we don't know still what will happen to the future of these two republics. Okay. Well, so as a question here, should Armenia recognize Artsakh to start the process of protecting it or... Uh, if you ask me, I think that they should have recognized it during the war. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we talk about yeah. like Putin making a decisive move. And this is actually what Putin said in his comments after the Artsakh War. Yes, he did. That Armenia, if their people, if your people are under threat, if your people are being attacked, uh, and you're a decisive, strong leader, you recognize political independence of that republic. If you feel it's very necessary for your national security, which it is for Armenia, mm-hmm. if it's the Vahan for Armenia, which it is, then you should recognize the independence of Artsakh. And he didn't do it. And not only that, even afterwards, he didn't do it. And what this could have prevented is it could have prevented the cession of certain territories that guaranteed Artsakh's security. Mm-hmm. It could have prevented the cession of those territories to Azerbaijan. So I think it was a huge misstep not to recognize it. And I think 
that it still is a huge misstep to ignore this issue. I think that they should recognize it, certainly. I think that that... I mean, even worse, you know, like Pajian, he said uh, recently that we cannot imagine Artsakh outside the borders of Azerbaijan. This contradicts actually what he said in April 2020, when in Stepan he said that Artsakh is army and full stop. The problem is that even the cause of self-termination is now supported by the authorities in Yerevan, and this is very dangerous, actually. I mean, like, I, sometimes I feel like, you know, our authorities, they take, like, copy-paste from the foreign ministry of Azerbaijan and then try to reframe it, and they uh, use these words. So, yeah, this is very disappointing. So, uh, I have a question in terms of the international law or legal matters. In terms of drawing parallels between Donetsk and Luhansk and Artsakh, uh, I've heard some Armenian analysts say and argue that actually Artsakh's case for in- independence from international law is much stronger than Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts about that? Uh, for me, yes, because let's not forget that there was a referendum that took place in the 1990s and the majority yeah. of the people of Artsakh, they voted. So the, in Artsakh, there is the state, the people, everything, you know, like... It's very democratic. So all the categories of, in, according to the international law, that state should become independent, where you should have state, territory, and the population, all these categories actually are found in the Republic of Artsakh, but due to political reasons and also due to lack of the political will of the Armenian authorities. And I'm not saying uh, from uh, 2018, just the new authorities, but even from 1994 until 1998, or even 2000, where we were at the peak of our power and military might, we didn't do that. So it's our failure. I, I also want to say, I want to, I want to say something else too, which is a very important point, that Donetsk and Lugansk, Oblasti of Ukraine, they basically assented to being part of independent Ukraine when Ukraine first came on the scene. 1991 is an independent state. And people in Donetsk and Lugansk would argue, well, we have, we, we, we came, we have democratic legitimacy too, and so on and so forth. But the difference is, that Artsakh declared its independence from Azerbaijan as the Soviet Union was still falling apart. Mm-hmm. So they would contend that, in fact, actually, we were never part of post-Soviet Azerbaijan. We were always separate. We were always independent. So legally, you cannot classify us as being part of the territory of Azerbaijan because we never were ruled by Baku. That yeah. as the Soviet Union was dissolving, we declared our independence. And during the Soviet times, they were autonomous? They were an autonomous oblast. This is another important thing. Mm-hmm. Unlike Donetsk and Lugansk, which were just oblasty, regular oblasty of Ukraine, Nagorno uh, Karabakh was an autonomous oblast. Autonomous, that's right. Yes. Um, so, depending on what Putin's end game is in this whole Ukraine crisis, one thing I want to one thing I want to say about really quick about Putin and and this whole thing with with the operation that's been launched. One thing we should be cognizant of: there are many towers in the Kremlin, there are many decision makers, many different ministers. Now, Putin makes the final and most important decision. Mm-hmm. On, on, let's say, a military operation in Donbass. But it's not just Putin's operation. So he talks with Shaigu, he talks with Lavrov. This is something, I'm not saying this is an issue with what you said. I'm saying that this is something you hear a lot in the Western, uh, you know, commentaries on this, that this is Putin personally doing this. 
I and understand. We, we talk He's about Putin, with, Putin, Putin, yeah. but but it is their entire state machinery that is in motion. That's absolutely right. Yes, in yes. fact, as you said that, I remember that our defense minister was uh, meeting with Shoigu just a few days yes. ago this week. And uh, I'm not entirely sure what the content of that was. But let me ask a question. Depending on what the end game is, I was going to say depending on what Putin's end game is, but let's say depending on what Russia's end game is, we're not go we're going to see Putin either asking all of his allies, such as uh, Kazakhstan and Armenia, to recognize these republics or will cede some kind of his initiative to recognize those republics into some other form. And I don't know what the end game is, but let's say he comes and asks Armenia to recognize Donetsk and Luhansk. Should Armenia trade that recognition, for example, by saying, well, Russia, why don't you recognize nagorno karabakh and we'll do the same thing for you? I think it's, it's, a, it's a wise it's strategy. But, and, and um, it's far-fetched, but... No, 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 no. I think, I think that, that, that would, if that was on the table, that could be something the Armenians could, could negotiate with, mm -hmm. with uh, Moscow on. But there is a, one big point here I want to make, which is that I don't know if Russia's concern now is just Donetsk and Lugansk anymore. I think mm -hmm. that now the concern has shifted to something else, which is almost like changing Ukraine's government. If well, Ukraine's one of the stated goals is to change their constitution. In fact, the Minsk agreement contained that, right? And denazify the country. So this would mean basically all those kind of far-right groups to kind of maybe arrest them, put them on trial, and so on and so forth. But the idea would almost be to change the nature of the Ukrainian government. And at that point, then the question of Donetsk and Lugansk becomes a matter of how do you, you know, reintegrate these into a Ukrainian state that's now friendly to you, that's not going to join NATO, and so on and so forth. So uh, that's going to be interesting to see. I would also add this too, really quick, that this operation that Putin uh, did uh, was effectively actually predicted by many, uh, it was, I mean, it was predicted by certain military analysts, mm -hmm. if you put it that way. So like Michael Kaufman, Mm -hmm. A military analyst was was uh, was predicting that he was going to like wipe out you know their military infrastructure, launch mm -hmm. incursions. Not Putin, but the Russian state was going to do this if pushed far enough. But the fact that we are the fact that he were here is is really concerning. I think. On Tuesday, I was asking if uh, if it makes sense to just annex or recognize these two Donbas and Luhansk simply because if you don't take, for example, Kharkiv and Sumy, then your border is still wide open, right? So you yeah. haven't done anything. So I, I had the feeling that there's going to be more on that front. But okay, I would like to move closer to our home. Uh, even though we're going to stay in Moscow, I guess, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Aliyev in Moscow. As you know, these two signed a declaration on allied cooperation, and Putin was quoted in TASS as saying, the current situation in nagorno karabakh is quite satisfactory, but certain problems still exist. And he called the document that he signed with Aliyev to be of strategic character. Parliamentary opposition Badivunem slammed the Armenian government for its failed policies and mismanagement of relations with strategic partner Russia. How should we interpret this whole thing where Putin is basically signing this document with essentially our enemy? Uh, Yeria, what are your thoughts about this? Well, uh, the Azerbaijani president, he already said that this there were negotiations for almost one uh, years or more about this declaration. So I'm not surprised. Uh, but also, like, uh, when it comes to the, using the word alliance, I think it's a big word. So I can say it's like more a strategic partnership between these uh, mm -hmm. two countries. But also, let's not forget that 
now I think Russia is trying to buy the Azerbaijani oil because the oil and the gas. Because for the Europe, the alternative of the Russian oil and gas is the mm-hmm. Azerbaijani or the one coming from the Caspian Sea, that, what is, that is from Turkmenistan or Azerbaijan and so on. And Turkey is a transit hub for it mm-hmm. or a facilitator. So Russia is trying to control Azerbaijan and also the future of Azerbaijan. I mean, when it comes, for example, when I was in Armenia, I mean, we had this discussion with Pedro and we thought that uh, which direction Armenia is heading, whether a union state with Russia and so on. So if Russia or let's say Putin has a project or initiative to, let's say, swallow the remaining countries into the Russian sphere of influence. And Azerbaijan is one of those countries. And uh, Russia will try to control in the future because Azerbaijan has rich mineral resources. And it is not in the interest of the Russians to see, for example, the British or the Turks to increasing their influence in a very in a country where it is uh, rich of mineral resources. At the same time, by also increasing uh, Moscow's le- leverage in, uh, in uh, Azerbaijan, maybe Moscow is trying to push the Azerbaijans and the armies to come closer and also open the communication lines and be interdependent on each other, as it was during the Soviet uh, period. So the more these two sense. countries... The more these two countries are interdependent, it means that the more they will prevent or they will uh, refuse to go to war because they have economic uh, relations with each other. I think this is the narrative that the Russians are uh, pushing forward. This makes sense because I've read uh, some of the Russian analysis and it seems like that sphere is relatively muted and uh, standoffish. They don't feel like anything really new from the content perspective has been added since their 2008 agreements. Pietro, do you think that basically this is managing the southeastern front for Russia? Yeah, this is managing the southeastern front. I want to add, a, a, you know, a few things that I want to, uh, you know, just kind of put it in the context that Russia's strategic interests. If we look at the geography here, yeah. they have this North Caucasus region that is very fraught with conflict that they are still in the process of stabilizing, and so it, for them strategically, they would love to have strong relations with three Caucasian states south of the greater Caucasus range, which are Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. And in that trio, Armenia is right now the most important because they have their the strongest influence there, that this is their Piedmont, so to speak. So in order to rebuild influence in the other two, you have to start somewhere. You can't just do it off the cuff. Mm-hmm. And so now they're trying to, Georgia, of course, given all the issues, I mean, this is where they would start because Georgia really was their historical center in the Caucasus. That now they're hoping to kind of rebuild the relationship with Azerbaijan, but I think that that is more of a long-term process. Let me add one thing to that, Pietro. Georgia is also interested, obviously, in starting some kind of a relationship with Russia because it declined the sanctions against Russia. It was against, well, it came out against more- the... It did, it did, but that's a little bit more of a complicated situation because, I mean, at least this current government, Georgia, wants to have balanced relations with Russia, but on paper, they're still pursuing the EU and NATO. Why did they decline these sanctions? Because the Georgian economy, even despite these Western aspirations that Georgia has been pursuing, especially since Saakashvili was in power, the economy of Georgia is so interlinked with Russia that any very, very, very serious sanctions against Russia are going to have very, very serious repercussions against Georgia. And if Georgia goes along with these Western sanctions, then it's going to be a political chaos in the country. And the so same with the, Armenia. Same with Armenia, too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And But I, I want to also talk about uh, the value of Azerbaijan for Russia, which it's not so much even 
uh, you know, natural resources because Russia has a lot of gas and mm-hmm. it's a lot of oil. It's supplying all that to Europe. All right. I mean, yeah. we, we know we, this is one of the issues we're here about with regard to Ukraine. Now, let me take you back 300 years ago. In July uh, 1722, Peter the Great launched uh, one of the first Russian expeditions into the Caucasus. And the focus, I mean, he he made alliance with Armenians and Georgians, and that, in the end, uh, was only limited in success. But he also made a bid for the Caspian coast and for Baku. That really hasn't changed, because in addition to the resources, which were discovered later in Baku, Mm-hmm. The, the gas and the oil. The position of Baku on the Caspian Sea, its strategic position, is very, very important for the Russians. Right. So that is to this day. And Baku now... It, it limits finite... the West's access into Central Asia, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. And Baku, actually, Azerbaijan has a finite supply of, of natural resources. Well, so for comparison, main... let me just add in that Baku's south stream is basically about 10 to 15 billion cubic meters of gas to Europe every year. And at the same time, for the the last year, I think Russia provided about 150 to 160 billion cubic meters, so less than 10%. So Azerbaijan's resources are not comparable to what Russia is providing to Europe right now, although it's something. Azerbaijan, yeah, yeah. Now, Azerbaijan, though, is important as a conduit because the idea that many of these American war hawks had for many decades to Mm -hmm. kind of undermine Russia was to use Azerbaijan as a pathway to get to energy-rich Central Asia, like mm-hmm. states like Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan, for example, yeah. yeah. And so that's the objective, or Kazakhstan. So that's 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 why Azerbaijan is important to both the Russians and, and the West. It's, it's more geostrategic. I like this aspect of looking at things from a geopolitical perspective of Russia and Armenia, but I can't help but, you know, when I read this uh, declaration that they signed on allied relations, is uh, very ominous and i don't know like you know i, I don't want to use very you know worse words but basically armenia is ge- armenia's geopolitical significance seems to be like below zero for instance point number one uh, mentions the principles of state sovereignty territorial integrity and uh, on top of territorial te- integrity as if that was not clear enough inviolability of state borders of the two That's countries right. Uh, right. Considering that Russia has also, or Putin for Russia has stated that uh, right after the war that Karabakh is part of, you know, an inviolable part of Azerbaijan, this is very concerning. But what's also interesting is that, you know, there are other points that are much more worrisome on top of this. So, for instance, point number six is, is standard, like it says, in case there's mutual threat, we will hold uh, consultations. But there's a point where it says, you know, the, the two countries will work actively to stop, to join their efforts in countering and neutralizing the threats of international terrorism, extremism, and I want to quote separatism, transnational organizational crime, etc. But mm-hmm. that word separatism is really worrisome because if Russia is considering Artsakh as an inviolable part of Azerbaijan, then is Alay Karutunyan a separatist? And that's point well, number I want to. I want to. I want to. I want to add uh, something to this really quick. That really, in reality, um, nothing has really changed. What do I mean by this? Because Russia has, for years, said that they support territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. Yeah. So in reality, nothing on paper, at least, has really changed. And also, Russia cuts both ways. So Russia, for an issue like Chechnya, this the territorial integrity matters a lot. But then when it comes to something like Donbass, then suddenly Russia is in support of self-determination. Right. So it can cut both ways. I mean, Russia, I mean, it, this this document is not like set in stone. Yeah. 
can be interpreted in different ways. But legally. it is very interesting that just at this point in yeah. time, Azerbaijan has also been talking about separatist leader, quote unquote, from their media. Yeah. So I'm making your point, Hovik. But I think that it is a failure of Armenian diplomacy in many respects. I'm going to just lay lay that out there, what, what resulted in I in completely Moscow agree from. with that. Yeria, do you have any further thoughts on this? Uh, no, but of course I have, in the future, I have concerns regarding the, as we already talked about, the economic impact of the war on Armenia. My question was actually what your thoughts are from the Armenian diplomacy perspective, whether this is a failure in diplomacy that they signed it or whether it would have happened regardless because it is in Russia's strategic interest to do this. I mean, I was not expecting something more from the Armenian diplomacy under these current authorities. Armenia's diplomacy has been uh, not proactive starting like after the war of Artsakh, even during, during the war, our diplomacy failed. And mm-hmm. after it failed, I mean, when I was in Armenia a few days ago, and there was international conference regarding the Iranian and the Armenian bilateral ties. Mm-hmm. And later we had the long meeting with the Iranian ambassador. It was clear that, you know, Armenia has not been proactive towards Iran. Mm-hmm. And Iran came up with many proposals and the Armenians still were silent. So it seems that the bad is of Yerevan is now to, to head towards Turkey and to try to engage in a peaceful relations with Turkey as if we are entering a peaceful uh, century. But the current situation has proven once again that the region is boiling. Yeah. What message is this agreement sending? What is Russia telling Turkey with this agreement? That still Russia has leverage over Azerbaijan. And when it comes to Azerbaijan choosing between Turkey and Russia, as long as Putin is in Russia, uh, Azerbaijan's choices are very limited. I absolutely agree. I mean, basically what Putin is saying with this agreement is he's demonstrating that, look, I'm, I'm the boss here. And also, again, he's trying to wrap up, at least temporarily, the southern front in advance of, of what he's going to do in Ukraine. Now, of course, this was being negotiated for a much longer period of time. But the idea of getting this under wraps now I think is directly tied with his plans, actually really the plans of the Russian government, because it's not just him again. It's also, he's talking with uh, Shaigu, he's talking with Medvedev, he's talking with all sorts of different people to make this decision. And uh, I think that uh, this was a way of kind of wrapping up that Southern Front and sending Turkey a message, you know, get out, you know, but out of our uh, neighborhood, so to speak. And the other thing is also, uh, when we look now at, at Turkey's position on Ukraine, This also, I would guess, would not bode well for the Armenian government's aspirations to forge deeper ties with Turkey, because it's very clear that now, especially that the Turks have uh, closed off the straits, that now that they're they're talking about this, that this is going to also significantly deteriorate and impact uh, Russia's relations with Turkey, which have been on the decline for some Mm -hmm. time now. All right, so the Euronest Assembly platform allows the EU Parliament to meet with its Eastern Partnership members, former Soviet states like Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine. The meetings rotate between these countries, and this year it was held in Yerevan. I wanted to ask to start off with what value does Euronest present for Armenia, especially today? I think the Eastern Partnership, I mean, the Euronest is part of this Eastern Partnership program. I think the Eastern Partnership program has been very detrimental to the region's security. I think that this was designed as a, as a way to kind of uh, bring NATO in through the back door and integrate many of these republics into NATO. Um, and the reason why I say that is because it goes back to the origins of the Ukrainian crisis, that this Eastern partnership played a pivotal role in what happened in 2013 and 2014 with the overthrow of Yanukovych. As we remember on the table was this issue of the EU association agreement 
Serge Sargsyan in the Armenian context, in our context, in our neck of the woods. He signed on with the, the CU, the Customs Union. At the time it was known, it now today is known as the Eurasian Union. Right. And uh, Yanukovych refused to sign, um, and that led to Maidan. And actually, he refused to sign for the same reason that many in Donbass revolted against Kiev. He was worried about you know, the economic terms of this association agreement. And so it played a very sinister, this organization, this arm of the EU that was led by Carl Bildt of Sweden, but also by former Mr. Zikorski, most prominently of Poland. This uh, organization played a very kind of sinister role in, in the launch of the whole Ukrainian crisis. So the events that began eight years ago, that culminated today in this new war we have on the European continent, this began with this organization, the Eastern Partnership. And so I don't think it can provide anything positive. And I think it's, uh, if it does not do anything that adds to anything positive in the region, it becomes another bureaucratic arm of the EU. But it has this history, this sinister history of being at the center of the initiation of the conflict that we now have seen today being blown up into a full-scale war. In fact, uh, at this meeting, there was a vote held to condemn Russia for their turning the military activities in Ukraine as an aggression. But unfortunately for us, the main takeaway was the two Azerbaijani MPs who came to Yerevan and almost literally recited all of Aliyev's propaganda points since the war. For example, you know, all the POWs have been returned, the conflict is still, there is no Arabah. also the Blue Mosque. Don't forget that, the Blue Mosque. Issue. Yeah, the Blue Mosque is, the Blue Mosque yeah. is, a, you know, they, they, they made claim to the Blue Mosque and then the Iranian embassy refuted that. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, previously when these meetings were held in Baku, Armenian parliamentary representatives did go to Baku, but under much more stringent security detail. And the leader of the country, Aliyev, actually publicly berated the Armenian parliamentarians. And uh, every single uh, Azerbaijani delegate, every single opportunity they had, they had like a very strong anti-Armenian push in all of these meetings. They had protests and so forth. I think in 2017, Armen Ashodian went, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they had death threats against uh, Ashutian. Aliyev called, I think Aliyev, Naira Zorabian was uh, remembering that Aliyev is basically pointed at them and called them, you, you guys are terrorists. So nothing like that happened this time. Or, you know, there were some protests, but in terms of the Armenian authorities, including the parliamentary members who welcomed their, their Azerbaijani colleagues, it was all very polite, really very courteous. And you know, they said for the sake of international cooperation, we have to do this. Any thoughts on this uh, dichotomy between different approaches? Uh, I'm not surprised, you know, after our, after, let's say, our defeat in Artsakh, you know, our society became very passive and defeatist, despite the fact that there were protest movement, but uh, against the visiting of these two MPs, but the protest movement was very limited and we saw how the police uh, acted very violently against the protesters. And also, I was very surprised to see that these two Azerbaijani MPs, they were just walking you know, in the streets very freely. Uh, good that they didn't took selfie with the people. I mean, I would not be surprised that some activists would also uh, sit with them and uh, so on. But entering you know, the Blue Mosque in Yerevan and also portraying as if Yerevan is an ancient Azerbaijani city, which is called Yerevan, 
and uh, portraying the mosque as in Azerbaijani mosque. I mean, for God's sake, the mosque is much... <laughs> much older than Azerbaijan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think the mosque was built in 1766 yes. or something. Yes. Yeah, but uh, I mean, the, but also that the idea that this is a uh, Azerbaijani mosque actually was given legitimacy by Thomas DeWall. Yes. You know, in, in Western in Western, comment, in Western commentary, I mean, that, that basically instead of saying, because this is by any objective measure, if you're an objective historian of this period of, of the Armenian history where Persia was the dominant force in the region, that is the Persian mosque. I mean, it's a mosque that that follows the standards of Persian mm -hmm. architecture at the time. So this idea that it's an Azerbaijani mosque is, is just ridiculous. But yet it's been Yeah, these two parliamentarians' actions basically drew a, a fiery response from the Iranian embassy. Basically, they said anybody who yeah. can read <laughs> yes. can see that this is a, an Iranian mosque in Yerevan. Actually, there is just a breaking news. Uh, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it says that Turkey has just confirmed that closed the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles Straits for the passage in front of Ukrainian and Russian ships. So this will have very severe repercussions. This is a very significant development in, in yeah. Russia. I think the last relations. time the it, last time it happened was during the World War II, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but yeah. this what this what this actually is is going to do is going to show Russia once and for all, and also uh, it's going to really kind of discredit those Russian elites for many years we're, we're promoting this idea of a russian turkish partnership so this is almost like the death knell of that kind of of the phase of kind of you know cooperation competition co-opetition whatever you know one thing so, we know from history is that when turkey and russia are on good terms armenia loses when those two are competing <laughs> armenia has a little <laughs> bit of room to survive Yes. But um, again, okay. you know, like, I mean, even if these two powers crash, now it's not in our advantage because we are in the weaker side. So any solution At our expense. Happen on, That's right. Our expense. I mean, if uh, Armenia had kept itself strong, uh, let's say, in the, like five years ago or 10 years ago, I think we would have taken advantage of some things. Right now, there's no opportunity. But also, it also depends on the leadership you have in Armenia right now in terms of leadership. It is completely a failure yeah. <laughs> of leadership. I still, if you ask me, I still don't believe that the army lost the war. All right, let's be done with our main topics now and turn it over to our panelists for any topics that you want to get off your chest. Hovig, what's on your mind? Um, all right, I want to begin this by saying that obviously my heart goes out to any civilian victim from any of these conflicts. Uh, I have family in Mariupol who are, you know, have several days of food and are besieged right now. I have family from Donetsk, some of whom have taken refuge in Russia in uh, refugee shelters. And obviously, as an Armenian, what we went through the, during the 44-day war, the amount of civilian sort of casualties there is, is really uh, you know, always on our mind. My comment is basically at the cynical behavior of world leaders, especially those superpowers who classify one conflict as a genocide, whereas another one is completely acceptable or something they can safely ignore. The cynical and mainly the behavior, cynical behavior of European leaders who just in the lead up to the war signed a two billion financial aid package for Azerbaijan. I just tweeted about the Ukrainian ambassador to Azerbaijan who, when he went to Shushi, couldn't hold it back and said that his dream came true seeing a depopulated, destroyed and ravaged uh, Shushi that was in the process of being the Armenianized, where the, I, I believe the I believe this uh, was already removed. Uh, you know, the cross was already removed uh, from the top. So, 
you know, to those leaders as an Armenian, I don't, I don't know what to, to say except to hope maybe they find their heart one day because what's happening to Armenians, the uh, cynical disparity, how the world treated Armenia versus Ukraine is heartbreaking, but yet again confirms that, you know, the only way for us to remain on this planet is through a strong Armenian state, which I sort of, you know, unfortunately, it's a, it's a tough lesson to learn now. Okay. Pietro, do you have something you want to get off your chest? Yeah, it's going going on this issue of the double standards as well. I would just amend and say that I think that the issue is not so much European disinterest uh, for the Caucasus versus Europe or Ukraine, but I think it has more to do with this uh, kind of a theory of good nationalism versus bad nationalism. This is something I, that I, I've been working on, this idea that basically geopolitically, Armenian nationalism is unpalatable to, uh, let's say, the interests of the American War Party, but Ukrainian nationalism is very useful against Russia. And so because Armenian nationalism is against the NATO member Turkey, they don't want to discuss this. No. So if Turkey is supplying Azerbaijan with illegal weapons to attack civilians in Artsakh, okay, well, then we'll kind of look the other way and we won't talk about this as much. But when it's Ukraine and Ukraine is being invaded by Russia, then of course we should we should be talking about this a lot. And I think that that is the heart of this differing response. I think it's very geopolitical. And I think that the people in Armenia, most of the people I've spoken to in Armenia over the last few days, people in Armenia, by the way, are watching this situation unfold religiously. I mean, the other day when I was listening to Putin's speech in my apartment, you could hear in the hallways, everybody was kind of listening to the speech. They were, everybody was watching what was going on. So people are paying attention. And uh, they no take note of the double standard. Also, they take note of the fact that while they are sympathetic with the Ukrainian people, or any people who are caught in the middle of a war, they're not sympathetic with this Ukrainian government that supported the Azerbaijani government during the Artsakh war, that gave Erdogan a medal during the war, as civilians were being targeted by Turkish and Azerbaijani attacks with illegal weapons, like uh, cluster munitions, phosphorus bombs, and so on and so forth. And uh, people also understand uh, at the heart of this is the issue of Ukraine's NATO pursuits and how that has helped. I mean, the, the Ukraine's NATO pursuits encouraged by the West and how that's led to this whole overall situation here. Okay. Yeria, what do you want to talk about? Uh, I totally agree. I mean, what Pietro said, the problem is that uh, still the Western journalists and reporters and scholars and even, you know, sometimes Armenians, they always fall this trap that our nationalism is not the same as, let's say, the nationalism of imperial states. Our nationalism is a protective nationalism. To, uh, which is limited to small nations, like uh, regarding our culture, traditions, the way of our thinking, uh, and so on. So we, we are not imperialists. We don't have any territorial designs on our neighbors, as Turkey and Azerbaijan sometimes they accuse us. We just want to recover, let's say, <clears throat> the Armenian areas of uh, Artsakh, so that the uh, people of Artsakh live in dignity uh, and security. This is our important cause right now. Uh, and when we talk about this, you know, like just the social media, I mean, just imagine this is the third day. I'm, I don't like to compare the pains. Uh, I understand with Ukrainians, I understand with the Russians, but in three days, the social media, everyone from maybe Zimbabwe to Australia, 
everyone is talking about Ukraine. But for 44 days, I remember even my friends, my leftist friends, you know, in Lebanon, when I was talking about uh, Artsakh, and they were like, you know, let's talk about both sides and so on, territorial integrity and stuff. I'm like, okay, why no one is talking about the both sides? You know, like people in Donbass were also being oppressed. So, yeah. Okay, thank you. And we're going to leave it there. Thank you, everyone, Pietro, Yeria, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon, everyone. Okay, that was our Week in Review show, and we hope it helped you catch up with some of the issues in and around Armenia from this past week. As always, we invite your feedback and your suggestions. You can find us on most social media and podcast platforms or our website, groom.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel on YouTube, like our pages, and follow us on social media. On behalf of everyone in this episode, we wish you a good week. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.